tragedy of that story was that the same darkness that was in Adam and Eve was the same darkness that was in them. And so what did God do? He made another promise. He said, I'll bring someone who will reflect me perfectly back into this cosmos that will be the kind of person that will reflect who I am and my character. And so he came. And with this obeying trust, the man of Jesus, he, he kind of reflected God perfectly back, the image of him back into this world. And, and he took on himself this darkness, this sin, this kind of attitude that says, I want to rule myself, please myself, serve myself. And he lived and showed us the fully human God, life-giving life, and he died a death to defeat that darkness, and he rose to new life to, to bring a new life, and he pours his spirit, if you like, within the hearts of anyone who would say, I kind of believe in who you are, and it cracks open a whole new way of thinking and beating and living. And in fact, those people who are followers of Jesus are the first ones to put up their hands and say, it's in me. It's in me too. That same darkness that I know we're made good and you love us, God, but I fall short and I fail too. And if you're like, Jesus wasn't coming to answer the question, what have I got to do to get to heaven? He was coming to answer the question, what is a good God going to do with a broken world? And his answer is, he's going to fix our wanters. Any human being, fix their wanters, if you like, so that they would become a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a Holy nation, that is the ones who choose to say, I want to walk that skinny road and align my heart and my body and my mind and my thinking into the way you always wanted me to walk down a fully human life, a life-giving life and a people for God's possession. Your purpose, if you like, to those skinny road walkers is to announce the virtuous deeds of the one who called you out of darkness into his amazing light so that one day he will come back and he will bring final order out of chaos you might be sitting here this morning and it's your first time here and you've never heard that story before and you're thinking i don't think our world's kind of that broken well i kind of picture that between two images this one was taken just at the beginning of this year in january in damascus thousands of people at a refugee distribution point for food starving to death because their bodies cannot get the nourishment they need Whilst just a few months later, the rest of the Western world is obsessed with a little game like this, seeking a little Pokemon in a place of which the share price goes up from Nintendo $20 billion last Friday. And if you were God sitting back looking at those two disparities, you'd kind of wonder, wouldn't you? What on earth has gone wrong with our world? So today... We want to pick up a really important theme here, and I'm glad you're here, because we've been talking about urgent attention. The idea that our culture says, if you satisfy your desire, you will be happy. But you know, some of the most happiest people in this world have very little, and some of the most unhappy have it all. In fact, we live in a culture that has unlimited access to everything. So last week, we were talking about having a bigger yes and practicing saying no, and that there's a God of graciousness and power that if you humble yourself beforehand, you can ride the urges that our world says you need to pick up and surf. But here today in this place, we want to unpack one particular theme as a continuation of that that's called unhooking. Why? Because you and I both know that there are times in our lives where we can 
not ride the urge, we can surf it. There are moments in our lives in which we can find ourselves being captivated to not only the culture around, but desire, and it's powerful. So what do we do when we find ourselves picking up a wave and riding it, and it feels like life, and yet it doesn't deliver the kind of life that God always intended. In fact, it might be that you're far more in slavery to that than what you were made and created for. So today, we want to talk about unhooking. We want to do it in a, some light way because it can be a heavy theme. But we're so thrilled that Judy Wilkie is here with us this morning. She's a counsellor. She is also a uh, minister in her own right. And she's been a guest with us over a number of years. And it's good to have you here with us today, Judy. She's going to give us every single answer you could ever imagine. <laughs> So in a moment, after we see a little clip that's just kind of unwrap it and unpack it, I want us to just welcome Judy together. In fact, why don't you put your hands together for her now? That's in anticipation of what we're going to be talking about, because this is a really important theme and an important one for individuals here who might be riding a wave right now that feels like it's life, but you don't know how to get off. That's what we're talking about today. So have a look at this. This is from a man who had never done anything wrong in his entire life until he invented a lie. The story you're about to see takes place in a world where the human race has never evolved the ability to tell a lie. This is a typical town in that world. As you can see, people have jobs and cars and houses and families, but everyone tells the absolute truth. There's no such thing as deceit or flattery or fiction. People say exactly what they think. Shut up. I haven't even got a job. Hi. I'm here for the rent. Yeah, I was going to come and talk to you today. I got fired yesterday. I know. That's why I'm here for the rent. Yeah, I haven't got it. How much do you have? I've got about $300 left in my bank account. The rent's 800 I know. I haven't got that. Then you're evicted. you got one day to get your stuff out of here. Well, how am I going to do that? you got $300. Rent a truck. What can I do for you today, sir? just been evicted from my apartment. So I have to withdraw whatever I've got in my account to move my things out. I think I have to close my account. Probably going to be homeless. Mark Bellison. Unfortunately, sir, the system is down right now, so I'm not going to be able to perform an account closure until it's back up. But I can help you with a withdrawal. How much would you like to withdraw today? All of it, whatever's left. The system is down, sir. Can you tell me how much is in your account? Sir? $800. $800. Pardon me? I have $800 in my account. Oh, the system just came back up. System seems to be back up, guys. Thank you. Just a second while I access your account. You said you're withdrawing $800, correct? Wait a second. It says here that you only have $300 in your account, but you said you wanted to withdraw $800? Yeah. I, I apologize, sir. It seems our system has made a mistake. Let's get you your $800. Did you want large bills or small? Very good, very good. We're going to pause things right there for a moment. Judy, welcome today. And some of you will notice that there is a little handout that is 
next to you uh, on the flyer. And so if you would like to, just follow with us this morning. If you want to take some notes, you can do so. And so there's um, details that you can record down on the sheet. Judy, welcome here today. We're just going to plunge through. I know that there's always far more for us to talk about than what we have time for. But uh, what we saw just there in that clip a moment ago was the idea of our brains being wired. So what I want to just launch off to with you this morning is to ask you, there's been a lot of research done recently about, uh, and it's ongoing, our brain's plasticity. It's flexible. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, first of all, good morning. It's kind of fun to look around and see all of your faces. Thank you for welcoming me here. It's nice to be here again. It was interesting watching, actually, the uh, the cartoon stuff beforehand because of those pictures of all the scramble. See all the, the notice all the wires all mixed up and messed up. Uh, that reminded me of what can it can look like in our brain when we are thinking negatively and rehearsing garbage in our brain. It the, it gets messy like that, just like your house gets messy when you allow yourself to swirl things around. And the idea that our brain is actually uh, an organ that has wires has become something that people have been thinking about a lot more lately, that you can think of your brain as having electrical pathways that are chemically uh, driven, but they're actually driven by an external source more than they are by the internal factors, and that's your thoughts. You know that you have a mind, and your mind is actually more in charge of your brain than you think. So what you choose to think can actually influence whether your brain looks like that tangled mess or whether it comes into a bit more sense of order. And it's literally affected by whether you choose to think positive, constructive, loving things or whether you choose to allow yourself to rehearse all the negative stuff that tends to swirl around in there. So what is good news about this idea of that we can actually rewire our brains and we can actually, if you like, change some of our thinking? What's good news about that whole idea? I think it's amazing that they can actually tell what's going on in the brain now because we always thought of it kind of like the mysterious black box. You know, it's, it's, it's always seemed somewhat separate from our thoughts. But now that we actually know that we can do something about it, that it can change, it means you can actually make a difference on whether your brain looks like a tangled mess or whether it stays in a tangled mess in any particular way that it already is one by choosing to think different things. And as I find with counseling all the time, it makes a lot of difference whether you can believe that the things that you choose to think are grounded in something that is substantial enough to make it worth thinking. So, for example, in the Christian faith, we believe the things that God has said about himself. And when that can resonate as true, that can help you to counteract thinking something else. Or we think God has made us to be like him. That means that I can have a dignity and a value that I might not have thought was possible. That's why I can be a choosing agent. And so uh, we have possibilities that perhaps we didn't know that we had. Sometimes when people talk about genetics, they make things sound like we're all very determined. What's amazing is it actually is your thoughts that switch your genes on and off. It's You're not predetermined 
by genetics. You are, you are actually affecting your DNA by the way that you conduct your thought life. That's very good. Now, Judy, the, uh, I'm going to launch into the, and shift it a little bit, knowing that our brains can be a little bit plastic, that we don't have to be controlled or genetically determined by desire or our genes. Um, I want to move into this whole idea arena of addiction. Have a look at this little clip here, because some of you may have seen it before, but it's just starting off the idea of someone who's addicted to a more socially acceptable addiction, which is shopping. So just have a quick look at this. My name is Joyce, and I'm a shopaholic. I'm the wife of a textile importer. <laughs> my husband found my secret stash in the linen closet. He found all of my cruise wear, and now he says that there won't be a cruise. Okay, hang in there, Joyce. What about you, Ryuchi? How was your week? My name is Ryuchi, and I'm a shopaholic. It is six months, three weeks, and four days since I last used my credit card. That was just wonderful, Ryuchi. You're an inspiration to all of us. Rebecca, why don't you share your story? Um, hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Rebecca Bloomwood. Hi, Rebecca. I just actually came here as a favor to a friend. Uh, I mean, I like shopping. Is there anything so wrong with that? I mean, stores are put there to enjoy. Uh, the experience is enjoyable. <laughs> well, more than enjoyable. It's, it's beautiful. The sheen of silk draped across the mannequin. Oh, the smell of new Italian leather shoes. Italian leather shoes, that's the best. Oh, the rush you feel when you swipe your card. And it's approved. And it all belongs to you. Okay, Rebecca, thank you for the sharing. The joy you feel when you've bought something and it's just you in the shopping. You in shopping. All you have to do is hand over a little card. Enjoy oh, it together. Isn't that the best feeling in the world? Yeah. Don't you just want to shout it from the mountaintop? That's real. <laughs> you feel so confident and alive. And happy. And happy. And warm. What's going on here? I need to buy a new bag. I have to impress a light nailer. You should get a watch to go with that bag. Oh, there's a, a sale at Catherine Malandrino. You're like my soul <laughs> sister. I know it. I have to go. Good luck, everybody. Do, do, do they have a shoe? You sit down. I'm really strong. My wallet is closed. Clearly, they're learning to do some urge surfing, and Rebecca had not. She should have been here last week for our series. But let's just plunge into this idea of addiction. When does a habit become an addiction or when does someone really lose control, if you like, over their own faculties about being able to make decisions about what they do with their body and their thinking? So unpack that for us, Judy. Well, we are creatures of habit. There's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's about what kind of habits. So you actually need some good habits so that you take decent care of yourself and decent care of your relationships, um, some, have some determination about what you think. So a habit in itself is something that is, you've just done it repeatedly, and so you've wired your brain by doing it repeatedly, thinking it repeatedly, and that's not necessarily bad. It's the content that's the issue. And what makes something an addiction is not even that it's a bad habit. It's what your payoff is for doing it. So if it gives you, the perfect illustration, if it makes you feel better, um, even though it might not really be healthy or good for you, or it gives you a, a thrill, that's when it's got a hook in it. 
that that's my solution. I'll feel better if I do that. Or And sometimes people stumble onto things quite unexpectedly where they were just minding their own business almost, surfing around in life, and something gave them a really big buzz. And once somebody's had that feeling of buzz, or it's given them a really big relief, I think, I want to have that feeling again. And that's where an addiction starts to hook. Um, it's still a, a choice. It, it becomes... It feels less like a choice when one makes that choice repeatedly because that choice is becoming a habit. Plus, it's also then rewiring your brain and, and affecting your body chemistry and so on. You can still change. You can still make a new choice. But you need more help sometimes to wake up to yourself because you've become full of denial and irrationality about the actual substance of what you're doing and its destructiveness. So it's legitimate then for some people to say, actually, I don't have a decision, even though you're contesting and saying you do, but it feels like I yeah. don't have yes. a rational choice. Yes, there's a difference between feels like and, and reality. Okay. But in feels like, one may not actually have any, any sense that I can choose or resist this at this point, in which case, of course, you need to put some things in place if you wake up to the fact that it's a problem. Because as you could see with that chopper, she hadn't. Yeah. She loved the feeling of control it gave her. No sense that it was actually spitting her life out of control. Yeah. So we often think about the three big addictions, so whether it be gambling to do with sexual addictions and pornography or when it comes to alcoholism. But there are a whole bunch of other addictions I'm sure that you would work with as a counsellor um, that are equally destructive, perhaps maybe not physically, but relationally with other people. What are some of those, Judy? Well, I just actually want to begin with the, the three that Troy mentioned. And some of you may have heard the little phrase, money, sex, and power, or things similar to that. And in a way, there, he's hitting on how those particular vulnerabilities that we all have lead into some really big arenas of sin and difficulty. For example, the desire for money um, and what it can buy can lead into the, the shopping and the purchasing, the gambling, the embezzling, the, the, um, the other things that people do to steal because they think money will make them bigger. Um, or sex, that's in lots of different areas where it can be uh, pornography, which is a, a huge one, um, are also people engaging in other ways of having power over people through sex as opposed to intimacy in, in relationship. Um, and the same with, um, with power. It's that feeling of having power. You could see them, that, that sense of they were getting power. And drugs are great for producing that feeling. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm high. I'm, I'm in mastery of everything uh, when I'm taking alcohol or drugs. Or even when I'm refusing to eat food, nobody can make me. It's still, it's still a feeling of power that's in there. And all of those are only solved through recognition and confession of reality. But other things like work. You know, I've, I personally can, can become a bit of a slave to work uh, because I have a lot to do, because I think I'm making a difference, etc. But it can actually take a toll on my time and my relationships, um, even my, my health and well-being and, and the, the diversity of my life because I'm working too much. Um, I don't think I'm alone in that. Screens, I think, and I'm seeing this in my office a lot now, are one of the worst things that's going on because people are addicted to this constant um, interaction and distraction. And so they cannot focus on their relationships. They lose the ability to talk to real human beings that are actually with them. They can't play games with somebody who's in the room, only somebody who's somewhere on the other side of the world or, or a machine. Um, 
uh, that one spouse gives in to the fact the other one's always on the computer or on, on their phone, and, the, and, the, and they start doing something similar with screens, could be the television. Kids, you can't have a conversation with them because they're too in their screens. Um, it's hard for parents to regulate that. Screens, I think, are really taking away so much, and our brains actually cannot multitask like that. It's turning our brains into mush. The only way that we can actually function well is if we can think deeply and give focused attention. And change, 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 change interferes with that. All right, you're talking to a few of us here right now, Judy. So we're just going to move it along a little bit, if that's all right. What we're going to do is show you. And all that time, it's wiring our biochemistry in our mind. I'm going to show you a clip right now. It's very powerful, um, but it's on the pathway of a young girl. Michael Douglas in the film Traffic has a daughter who is embarking on casual drugs. And the whole movie is about her getting hooked on those. And here's where it kind of begins. I want to show you. It's a very powerful little clip. Thanks, Tim. Caroline, open this door immediately. Who is it? I'm going to the bathroom. Excuse me, I have to go to bed. You are not going anywhere, young lady. You stay right there. Where are they? Where the hell are the trucks? Where are they? I wasn't doing anything. You're like the Gestapo. tragedy of this little scene here, Judy, is that you've got a dad who's wanting to very much rescue his daughter, but she's seeing these just casual recreational drugs. Now, this can happen in any kind of form of addiction and going deeper to things, um, but it strikes me that soon in this film, her whole life starts to revolve around this area of her addiction. She's no longer in control of it. It's in control of her. You're talking about um, what would you comment on this and, and also Caroline Leaves she's written a, a book on the whole 12 step process could you unpack this a little bit for us there's too many things in that <laughs> um, first I want to comment on Carolyn Leaf um, she didn't write on the 12 step process she wrote this book called Switch On Your Brain and she's actually speaking at Discovery what used to be Care Force up in Mount Evelyn this coming weekend this is one of the best books you can read about how to get your brain working well. It's very, very, very informative about the science and the Word of God because she's done her research on relating the Word of God to the science. And, uh, and a 21-day program that can help you 
form, of, form better habits. That's actually how long it really does take to form a habit, 21 days. Your brain tells you that that's how it works. Um, but in terms of this video, what you saw with that daughter was deceit, lying. And lying almost always gets involved with any kind of addiction. People start hiding what they're doing, and they're really in denial to themselves about how destructive it is. But they're also not telling the truth to the people around them, who very genuinely get very upset if they find out about uh, what's going on. And therefore, that's a good reason to lie, because I don't want to have that unpleasant experience of the other person getting upset with me. But what happens is that when people um, are telling lies and they're doing something they know not everyone would approve of, guess how they feel about themselves? Not good. Shame. And shame is basically, I don't feel good about me. And, and so it becomes a self-feeding cycle. Whatever got me started in this has now been compounded by the fact that I start hiding and telling lies and messing up my relationships and it takes more and more time, more and more money, more and more secrets, more and more unpleasant interactions. All that makes me feel worse about myself. And that's the cascade that happens for people. And the stuff that they're telling themselves is not so great. This isn't really a problem. I'm dying over here. It's all mixed up in there together. There are some people who feel like that they, even followers of Jesus, that they are powerless to change. In fact, the tipping point between is this in control of me or is there some other force that's taking me over? There's a passage in the Bible that goes like this. Stay in control of yourself. Stay awake. Your enemy, the devil, is stalking around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Staying resolute in faith. There's this idea, and some people here might find it hard to grasp, that there's a, a power that wants to destroy anything of God's good work. And we, we name him the devil. And uh, for someone who's been on addiction, I think they can understand the forces at play that here. It's hard to distinguish between what's actually just me and what's actually a, even a greater force than me at work in me. What would you say? First of all, just to, to notice the word power for a minute, it does say in the Bible that all power is given to Jesus. And therefore, there's a road out of powerlessness. But it's not to think that I have power. It's also not to overgive power to the devil, but he does have power. It's just not if you don't give it to him. Um, uh, but it starts to feel that way once you get caught in a cycle and, it, and this, this hook begins to take more, more and more shape in your life. There's actually power in the cross. There's power in God. And the first thing that anyone has to do to admit is to admit that I don't have power, which is a hard thing for an addict to do because they always think they have control. I always think this makes me feel powerful. So to actually admit this, is, this has power over me is the beginning, as Troy mentioned earlier, of the 12-step program. It's the very first step I have to admit that I'm powerless over this thing. It begins with alcohol in terms of the 12-steps programs, but then they apply to everything. I have to admit I'm not in control of this. And when, you, when they do admit that, and I find when I'm in, in working with people and also the stories I hear, and people start working with what's going on in their thought life and in their behaviors, they also do often encounter a sense of there's something else here that's not me that's adding to the problem. And that's what Troy is talking about here in terms of the enemy of our souls who will take advantage and try to make worse and try to inhibit. But the word of God and, and Jesus himself are stronger. Mm. Here's our last little clip here. And it's actually showing someone who's doing that 12-step and they're actually making those confessions. Because I want us to move now yeah. and talk about what practical steps if someone's riding and hooked on one of those waves, yeah. what does it take for us to actually get off them? Thanks, Tim. So it was my birthday, and uh, my ex-wife was getting remarried. 
And I was in some church basement telling a bunch of strangers that it was a good day because I didn't have to eat out of a dumpster. That was enough to send me out on a pretty big one. I've been thinking a lot about the first step. That I came to believe that I was powerless over alcohol and that my life had become unmanageable. See, my disease tells me that I don't have a disease. That it's my birthday and I can have one little beer, one little line, little Valium. Six months later, as I wake up in a sober living house in Philly, <laughs> I'm from Dallas, people. It's a disease, an allergy of the body, an obsession of the mind. So my name is Marty, and today I'm a grateful, recovering alcoholic. And it's a good day because I didn't have to eat out of a dumpster. Thanks. Hi. I'm Caroline. I'm not sure I'm an alcoholic. I mean, I don't really like to drink. For someone my age, it's a lot easier to get drugs than it is to get alcohol. I guess I'm angry. I mean, I think I'm really angry about a lot of stuff. I'm just not sure what. So that was the first step, if you like, towards that first step in the 12 step saying, I have a problem, I need God's help. Where do we go from there? That first step is such a tough one that in Alcoholics Anonymous, they make people admit it every time they come, even if they've been recovered for a very long time, uh, just to remind yourself that you've always got a vulnerability to getting hooked again by something that had a lot of power in your life before. In Alcoholics Anonymous was developed by a couple of Christians who developed the 12 steps that have then been applied to many other things. And the second step is I came to believe that a higher power could restore me to sanity. So it began with admitting that I was powerless, but then the second step was to actually choose to believe that there is help and that that help is available in a higher power, which the the Christians who founded that would have understood very clearly to be Jesus, but not everyone is ready to think of the higher power that way, so it's made more accessible. And then the third step in the 12 steps is to say, I made a decision to turn my life over to, to, to turn my will over to this higher power. And then it goes on through the, the 12 steps to talk about making a fearless moral inventory uh, of the way that I've, I've harmed others and harmed myself for that matter. And, um, and then doing something about going to set it right with people, staying in the fellowship where they're, where they're sharing honestly and openly and becoming willing to help others. So that's the kind of the progress of those 12 steps. And the community is really important. As you can see, there's a community in the anonymous groups. And the church is a very powerful community for being able to support people who are willing to confess that they have difficulties in their life, whatever it might be. And instead of hiding and being uh, absorbed with shame and lies, this needs to be a place, as it is before the throne of God, where one can be honest. And, And in being honest, then you have hope of gaining the real power, which is the help that comes from the God of truth. 
Judy, what would you say to someone here this morning who's perhaps saying, well, I might not be hooked on those things, but I'm finding myself as you're talking realising I'm hooked on that thing or I'm hooked on that screen or I'm hooked on those uh, pieces of literature or I'm hooked on that shopping. Yeah. What would you say to them? I think we first need to admit to ourselves that this is actually doing something for us and that what it's doing for us might not be as good as we think. That's the first step. It's you know you're doing it for a reason. You're eating that extra food for comfort. You're shopping for the thrill. You're you're working harder because you want people to think that you're really um, important or making a contribution or something. You know there's a there's a there's something in it that gives it a hook. So we have to ad- address what it is that we are believing that this does for us if we actually want to get free from it. So it's at recognizing there's a problem, but also recognizing I'm going to have to address what I think. Because what I think is leading to my actions and is leading to the fact that this is a rut that I get into over and over and over in my mind. And I need to become determined that I'm going to think true things that are life-giving, that lead to love, that lead to health. And, and so that's, the, that's that decision. And we need the support of others. And one of the things as a community that we need to offer is a space where if I'm honest with you, you go, instead of shock horror... You go, wow, that must be really hard. You know, how you can must I practice that a lot? <laughs> we all have to deal with ourselves um, in terms of our reaction, especially something that you might not have heard of before or that you didn't expect with the other person. To instead of having a shock reaction if somebody shares something with you, which they're really afraid you will have, to have a wow, that must sound, that must be really hard kind of reaction. We can all practice this. Wow, that must be really hard. <laughs> Right now? Yeah. Yeah, okay, all right. Just turn to the person next to you, maybe. Wow, that must be really hard. Go for it. That was really hard, wasn't it, just then? Because some of you don't like doing that. (laughs) And the other thing I'd like you to practice saying to yourself is, Jesus can help me. Yeah, Jesus can help me. Jesus can help me. Yeah. Jesus can help me. Because if I start getting that thought into my head... There's a pathway of hope, and it's true. It's factual. You might not all know that yet, but it's the truth. He can. He is the liberator. Um, and we need to be willing to be persistent in walking with one another because people who are addicts often really burn the people in their world. Um, whether you're burnt because your, pers- the, your partner or your child won't talk to you because um, they're too busy being preoccupied with people who aren't in the room, um, or whether you're burnt because that, that person has spent the money again. Or they lied to you when you saw it, you found out again. You know, there's a lot of things that are affecting both the person who has a, a habitual practice and their loved ones. And people get very burnt. Family members are terribly affected. And, and people walking alongside are, are struggling with how to, how to stay there without getting ripped off. So it takes very tough love. Judy, thank you. Uh, I realise the the time we have, we'd always love to hear more of you talking, isn't that right? And not less of me, more of Judy. I know what you're saying. All right. I know what you're saying. However, given our time frame and some of the things we want to finish off with, some uh, communion space this morning, can I invite the band to just come? We're just going to fast track here for a moment. Judy, would you put your hands together for Judy for being here? Thank you. It's this lovely song that that this crew are just going to start singing. And they're going to um, begin 
uh, to just create a space for us, perhaps to allow God to speak. I just want you to have a look at these words here. This is what Jesus said. I'll tell you the truth. Anyone who sins is a slave of sin. A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is part of the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you're truly free indeed, is the words of Jesus. I think to myself, what kind of community do we need to be to allow people like you and like me who catch waves and feel like we are on them to unhook in a way that helps restore us? And these are the words that I find and discover in the Bible. Paul writes this, my dear family. I like that. My dear family. If someone is found out in some trespass, then you, the spiritual ones, should set such a person right in a spirit of gentleness. So easy to point fingers and rebuke someone in a spirit of condemnation, isn't it? I mean, we do that to ourselves all the time. My dear family, if someone is found out in some trespass, then you, the spiritual one, should set such a person right in a spirit of gentleness. And watch out for yourselves. You too may be tested. If you think you're above it all, carry each other's burdens. Carry each other's burdens. Carry each other's burdens. Carry each other's burdens. Because at the foot of the cross, there's no finger pointing. There's just hands raised saying, it's me too. I might not be on a huge wave, but I could be. Jesus, help me walk a skinny road. That's the way to fulfill the Messiah's law. We've got some stations set up around the room and in the room next door, and it's a communion space. And if you're here this morning and you don't even know what that is, one of the most powerful meals that Jesus gave to his followers was to remember his life, death, and resurrection. And if you're here this morning and you just don't quite understand everything about Jesus, but you think there's power there, I don't quite get it, but I want to thank him for it, I want to draw close, then you're welcome to. What I'd invite you to do is... they sing this song that you might get up out of your chairs, that you actually might go ahead and go to the, one of the stations and take a piece of bread, take a cup, go back to your seats, that you might quietly want to reflect and say, Jesus, is there something in my life that you would want to do in me? In fact, there's three questions on the sheet you have before you. Is there something that's preventing me from walking on this skinny road? Jesus, is there something you want to say to me? Am I hooked on something that I need to actually just break off? Then as you're doing that, there's just going to be a couple of us down the front here ready to pray for you because the next thing that the Bible talks about is healing confession. Because when there's a community that says, we'll carry, not condemn, we'll carry, we'll carry each other's burdens then. One step of confessing brings darkness to light shifts things if you'd like to participate and you don't quite know how there's a little grey card on the table there you can read and participate if 
you're here this morning and you sense I'm following Jesus on the skinny road, but I am yet to announce that through baptism. There's a sheet there that says, I would like to write your name on that. We'll follow you up. As they sing now, I'd invite you to respond as you sense God leading you.